Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Thank you, Roy. Hi, everybody. How are we doing? It is so nice to be back in uh, Colorado. I... um, in the early 80s, I was a, um, did an interim pastorship for about uh, six months in Colorado Springs, and I really, really loved the people here. I loved, the, loved the, you know, everything about it, but I'm from Southern California, and I was you know, raised there, so I had to come back there, but I always loved coming back here, and particularly with you guys, because you know, you got one of the best pastors going in pastorate. You know that? I tell you. He, uh, <clears throat> we did a... Uh, a pastor's Perspective program about, when was it, about five or six years ago. And he is really, really good, very good at answering questions and uh, really on the ball, really knows his stuff. In fact, there's one particular question for years and years we would get when people would ask, well, you know, this passage in the Old Testament usually says this, and do I have to do this? And I'd always just tell the people, well, look, <clears throat> there's a difference between what the Lord commands us to do and just something he records for us to do. And so we need to understand the difference there. Well, Ed got the question. He says, look, it's real simple. The passage either descriptive of something that went on or prescriptive of something we're supposed to do. It's just that simple. And I looked at him and go, yeah, why didn't I think of that? So anyway, I use that from now on. So I always think of Ed every time a question along that line comes. That you are blessed to have him uh, here. He's, uh, and so I'm blessed to be here. I've had a great time so far. You have fabulous folks here, and I'm just privileged to be uh, part of it. Now, Ed asked me to talk about the subject of 25 signs were near the end because we are living in some very, very exciting times. Some of you know, because you've already told me, I have a program that you watch from, it's 10 to 11 Pacific time, Monday through Thursday on his channel. His channel, www.hischannel.com, is 24-7 Christian television on the internet. And it's by far the largest Christian network on the internet. It's mind, literally mind-boggling the number of people that watch and tune in that we have from around the world. But what we do every um, Monday through Thursday, if you can't watch it real time, it's on video on demand. What we do is it's called breaking news. And we do something nobody else does. We look at the news stories that are happening right there in real time. And the ones we deal with, deal with what the Bible said the world's going to be like in the last days. So we always apply Bible prophecy to these stories. And what's fascinating, I do four hours a week. And at the end of the week, there's usually 100 stories I don't even have time to get to. That's how much is going on right now. So it's incredible that we have that much. And so this subject is obviously near and dear to my heart. So um, we encourage you, breaking news, uh, Monday through Thursday. And again, it's on video on demand. If you can't watch it live, it'd be, what, 11 to 12, your time here. All right, uh, Ed asked me to do a talk on on Bible prophecy. And what I want to do is basically put into proper perspective, uh, fitting the totality of Scripture. First of all, we have the claims of the Lord. The Lord claims that he is the one who knows the past, the present, the future. He knows all things. These are claims that God makes. We're not making this up. He has made it himself. Also, we have a past record of prophecies that he has given that have been literally fulfilled. So he's not only made the claims, we have a record of claims, you know, that are literally fulfilled in the past, tremendous ones. And we'll talk a couple, about a couple of them today. And then prophecies fulfilled in our present day. So we have past, 
present, and then, of course, there are future things that are going to take place, uh, signs of the end, what will happen once the church gets out of here. But the bottom line is God wants us to know the future. Now, knowing this subject is very practical. This is not just to find out what's going to go on like you're looking at a crystal ball or something like that, what's going to take place in the future. It's very practical because what it tells you and I that there's a God who exists, who knows the future, who's in control of the future, who's told us certain things about the future so we can have total confidence in him. So um, the claims of the Bible, uh, there's a number of them that we, we mentioned here, but I want to uh, talk about one of them in particular. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the 48th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 48, we're going to read verses 3 through 6, and we're going to see what the Lord says about himself. Isaiah 48, 3 through 6. It's one of the passages we have in the Scripture. There's a number of them in each testament where the God of the Bible claims that he is the one that announces things ahead of time. And so I'll be reading here out of the Net Bible, the New English Translation, and here's what it says. Here's what the Lord says. I announced events beforehand. It's over here. I announced events beforehand. I issued the decrees and made the predictions. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. I did this because I know how stubborn you are. Your neck muscles are like iron and your forehead like bronze. I announced them to you beforehand. Before they happened, I predicted them for you. So you could never say, my idol did these things. My cast image decreed them. Then he says this, and here's the key, verse 6. You like underlining in your Bible or putting a little yellow marker through it? This is the key. And I love the way the Net Bible puts it. You have heard. Now look at all the evidence. Will you not admit that what I say is true? Isn't that a great passage? You have heard, now look at all the evidence. Won't you admit that what I say is true? By the time we're done here, you're going to have your mind blown with what the Lord has said ahead of time. But anyway, in this particular passage, look what he says. Number one, a couple observations. He said he's announced things before they take place. He himself claims to have made decrees and predictions, and the predicted events have always come to pass. He's 100% right, 100% of the time. Now, he gave predictive prophecy because Israel was so stubborn. Remember, they would give credits to their idols as gods, and they would say, uh, they're the ones that brought us you know, out of the promised land instead of God himself. And so predictive prophecy from the God of the Bible is to demonstrate that these idols and false gods are just that. They're non-existent. And so he's the only God that exists because he knows the end from the beginning, things that haven't happened yet. But the punchline is verse 6, you have heard, now consider all the evidence. If you look at the evidence, and, and here's the, the real thing, if you look at the evidence, you really objectively look at it, there's no way you can doubt that there is a God that exists, that the Bible is indeed what it claims to be, the word of the living God. And as we see this morning when we deal with this, there's going to be no doubt whatsoever about it. Now, what we have also are examples, like we said in Scripture, of fulfilled history in the past. The prophet Jeremiah was predicting the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, but he's also predicting the return and literally fulfilled. The city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, but as Jeremiah predicted, they came back in 70 years. They were taken captive, they remained there for 70 years, and they returned based on a prediction by a man named Cyrus, who was predicted ahead of time by the prophet Isaiah that he would 
predict this return from Babylon. And interestingly enough, Cyrus was predicted by name about 100 years before he was even born. Isaiah 44:28 into chapter 45 gives this prediction. And so we have examples of fulfilled prophecy with the city and the temple and the return. So God has a huge, huge track record in the past. But let's now, with that in mind, let's go to the future, things that are happening right now, signs that we have in the end. And we'll put this in proper perspective. About six years ago, I did this class uh, for Calvary Chapel in uh, Tustin, Southern California, on the uh, Ezekiel 38-39 invasion. But to do it right, you start with chapter 33, and we went through that, and it took me about a year and a half, and I ended up with about 200 plus pages of material. There's a lot of pages there. And Ezekiel was a, by the way, was a prophet that in Babylon, but he was a priest in Jerusalem. He's, he's carried off to Babylon, and all of a sudden God taps him on the shoulder and says, now you're going to be a prophet. You're going to speak to my people for me here in Babylon. And so they had heard then when Ezekiel was there, the literal fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, the temple was destroyed, the, the people were removed, the city was destroyed. All the people in captivity needed a message of hope. And God told this man Ezekiel, you're going to be the one that gives us this hope. And so in chapters 38 and 39, Ezekiel is not talking about the near return of the people from Babylon, but way off in the distant future, far in the future, in the very last days, certain things will take place. And so in the last days, there'll be certain specified nations that are going to invade Israel. There'll be certain nations missing from that invasion. And we'll find out something else really interesting here that when this happens, there will be no superpower who can or will intervene on the side of Israel. So a lot of interesting things going on here. So if you I want to turn one more place with me to Ezekiel chapter 38, and we're going to read verses 8 and 9, and then we'll put all this in perspective. Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 8 and 9, and this is a passage where God now is addressing this leader of this last day's coalition that's going to come into the promised land and invade Israel. He's given the title Gog, G-O-G. Now that's a title. He's not like uh, uh, John Gog or Mr. Gog or that. Gog is a title, sort of like a Pharaoh, uh, Caesar, Grand Poobah or something like that. So Gog is this leader of this coalition. And here's what he's told. In verse 8 of Ezekiel 38, after many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come to a land restored from the ravages of war with many peoples gathered on the mountains of Israel that had long been in ruins. Its people were brought out from the peoples and all of them will be living securely. You will advance. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the earth. You, all your troops, and many other peoples with you. So this is the introduction to the invasion that's going to take place in the last days. So anyway, after I'd, I'd done this, you know, I'd, I'd taught this class, someone heard that I uh, was teaching on Ezekiel 38, 39, so they asked me at a prophecy conference to do a one-hour talk. Now, I've been doing this thing for a year and a half. I have about 200 pages of notes. They asked me to do it in an hour. I know I talk fast, but I couldn't get it all done in an hour, so I figured I've got I've to do something different here. I've got to come up with a plan that is kind of uh, uh, unique and distinct. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever done it, but anyway, I came up with this. thought, okay, if it's a literal battle that's going to take place in the future, what we find in Ezekiel basically 37 through 39 is a picture of what the Lord describes the world, what it would be like at the time of the end. So what I did, I got my little yellow pad out, and I started writing down certain things that the Lord assumed would be in place 
when the end would come. In other words, uh, what is the world going to be like at the time of the end? Now, again, Ezekiel didn't know when that would be. None of us do. But the Lord told us certain things will be in place. So anyway, there were, what I came up with were 20 things, 10 things that will be in place at the time of the end, when the battle, the invade, well, it's not a battle, God just wipes out the armies, when the invasion takes place, then 10 things that will happen during the invasion and kind of look at uh, all these things. All right, so anyway, we're going to go through them and, and talk about them. Now, here's what Scripture says. Number one prediction, the nation of Israel will exist in the last days. That's prediction number one, which is sort of obvious, isn't it? Since the nation of Israel is attacked in the last days, they got to exist. So that's an assumption. So I wrote down, Israel still exists in the last days. However, we're told from verse 8, which we just read, they will have been scattered throughout the world. So even though they're going to be attacked, there was a time before that they're scattered throughout the world. So this is another assumption. But then, at some future time, the people of Israel will return to their ancient homeland, but will only be in the last days. Now, this is important. There'll be a return from being scattered around the earth, <clears throat> but it'll only take place in the last days, the very last days. And the last days means before God's kingdom comes to earth. And so noted that. Now also too, another interesting thing about the prediction here, the people will return after being gone for a long time. Now this is fascinating because it's not talking about the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah said that's only for 70 years. 70 years are going to go, 70 years are coming back. Literally fulfilled 606 BC to 536 BC. They were taken, they came back. This is talking about an un, you know, unaccounted for time. We don't know how long it's going to be. They're going to be away for a long time, the prediction says. So it's different than the Babylonian captivity. Now, when they come back, we're told number five, they're going to come back in huge numbers, huge, huge numbers, like an army, Ezekiel 37 says. So it's going to be a big group of people coming back in the last days after being gone for a long time. Now, the land that they return to will not be the land of milk and honey. It's not the promised land they once knew. It's a land that's been decimated by war, devastated. In other words, what they come back to is not something, you know, waiting for them that's perfect. It's something that's very much imperfect because of the wars and desolations. Scripture predicts that. And then, though they return to this desolate land, though they come back to a desolate land, the next prediction is they're going to come back and create great wealth. They're going to turn it into something very, very valuable. So they're coming back in the last days after being scattered four corners of the earth, being away for a long time to a desolate land, which they'll turn around, a land that is very, very valuable and create great wealth. Now, when they return, they'll also uh, form some sort of state or some sort of political entity. There will be a state of Israel. There won't be just a mob. There'll be a state there that, that functions there when they get invaded. In other words, they some type of political entity with a government in that. Now, what's also fascinating here, their borders include the mountains of Israel. This is very important, the mountains of Israel, because the Lord says it's when the enemy gets to the mountains of Israel. At that time, the Lord, you know, basically destroys the incoming armies. But the mountains of Israel would belong to them at this particular time. And then uh, the borders that will include the mountains of Israel. But when they do come back, there will be an unbelief of Jesus as the Messiah. Unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah. Because what will happen is uh, when they come back, they'll begin to see God working supernaturally with all that's going on. So this is what's taught to us, basically, the, t the, ten, the ten things about the pre-invasion. Now, the invasion, there's a number of things, too. 
Uh, basically, there's seven or eight modern nations, depending how you carve them up, that's going to invade Israel in the last days. The reason they do it, Israel has something these nations want, something they need. So these nations that surround them, these seven or eight nations, will come and invade from the north, south, east, and west because Israel is a little tiny nation that's come back in the land, will have something they want and something they need. Now, what's fascinating about this, when you look at the map of the nations that are invading, none of them border Israel. They're nations that are from the north, the south, the east, and the west, but no one on Israel's border, which is kind of interesting there. The leader of co the coalition, personage named Gog, will want to take something that does not belong to him. He'll get this evil thought and want to take something that does not belong to him, which will raise a protest now from the Gulf states, it's ancient Sheba and Dedan, or modern-day Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. So they will protest this uh, invasion, though. The people will be living confidently in the land or securely at the time, relative peace, and they're not expecting this. But then when these nations enter the promised land, we are told God will supernaturally intervene and wipe out all the armies, completely destroy their armies. Not only that, we're also told in Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 6, he'll destroy all the main structures of the country that sent them. So it'll be a complete destruction. The entire army will be destroyed. The main structures that sent them will be destroyed. And then at that particular time, when this happens, the people will look up and say, wow, there must be a God in heaven because this is something supernatural. All right, so 10 things in place before the invasion occurs. Once the invasion takes place, 10 things at least that will take place. Now, this is what was predicted by Ezekiel. He's, he's writing 2,600 years ago. Well, how, how, did, how did the Lord do? Well, he did pretty well because if you've been paying close attention, the 10 things that we mentioned that must be in place predicted 2,600 years ago are in 2019 Every single one of them is right now in place, ready for this to happen. Miraculously, all of these have been literally fulfilled. That is one of the mind-boggling things about this. Because we're going to have to ask ourselves, how could someone living 2,600 years ago predicting the time of the end when Israel will return to its ancient homeland after being gone for a long time, all these things come together, and there's only one answer to that, as we're going to see, there's a God in heaven. Let's just go through them. Number, okay, number one, the nation of Israel does exist in the last days. Now, this is amazing, given to think of the existence of these people. There have been no people on the face of the earth that have been persecuted like the nation of Israel, no people that have been, uh, you know, basically attacked. Uh, what, one of the interesting things, I've talked to the group last night about this in, in first service, is I, I did a, um, uh, when I did a, one of the books that I wrote, uh, I did some uh, work with people who had lived, Bible uh, predictors, prophets, uh, not prophets, but uh, Bible commentators, who have any, lived anywhere from 100 to 400 years ago, predicting what the last days would be like. And one of the things they noticed, they all made the same point, that not only do the Jews still exist, they exist as a cohesive group. In other words, they keep their own laws, they keep their own dress, they never be absorbed, they never uh, mingle in with the nations. They're always kept as a separate group wherever you find them in the world. In other words, they're kept distinct. And this was something really amazing because it set the stage, of course, they thought for the day Israel would come back. But the fact that they even live uh, to this day is an amazing prediction. Humanly speaking, there would be no guarantee they'd even get back from Babylon, uh, much less a second exile, which happened in the year A.D. 70, when they were sent to the four corners of the earth. But the nation of Israel does exist in these last days. We just had the 71st anniversary of them. 
Now, also, too, the second one was literally fulfilled. They were scattered throughout the world. Like I said, this is one of the things the commentators noted. Wherever you go, uh, you know, this, they're right in the 19th century, they found Jews in hot weather, cold weather, whatever, but they're always a distinct people. You could always tell who they were. They kept their laws. They kept to themselves. They felt they were a special people because they were God's chosen people. They continued to exist, but they were scattered from the four corners of the earth. So not only, number one, they exist in the last days, they had been scattered, but then the amazing thing, they returned to their ancient homeland uh, in the last days. Scarcely a nation that didn't have Jews or had not Jews, and uh, now in the last days, they returned to their ancient homeland, just as the Bible said. There's a number of specific predictions that the scriptures give with respect to that, but here they are in the land in the last days against all odds of history. Now to think about this, how incredible it is that they're here in their ancient homeland uh, in the last days is literally mind-boggling. When you think that in 1948, May of 1948, the modern state of Israel was reborn, and yet uh, this is just three short years after the end of the Second World War. One of the most uh, memorable events I've ever had in my life is when I, uh, I took my mother on vacation to uh, Europe. The year was, well, it was 1980, 1988. And um, we went to Germany. And there's a train you can take from the city of Munich. Munich's one of my favorite cities in, in all of Europe. Anyway, there's, a, there's a, a, a short train you can take from the city of Munich to a place called Dachau. Dachau was one of the camps of Hitler's final solution. And the camp is basically still there. You can walk through it. They've got the, the, the barracks there reconstructed, and then the, the, the ovens where they put the, the Jews in. And it was, a, let me tell you, it was a very heart-wrenching experience for me. Uh, it was a cold day. It was in November, December. It was like 25, 30 degrees out. I was miserable, but I wanted to be miserable. I didn't want to be happy there because it was an awful day. Wind was blowing. It was cold. And what, what happened was you get in the, the little area before you go to the, the barracks and that, and they have the newspapers in, you know, in, in German that talk about, you know, and basically separating the Jews. The Jews are in the cartoon, you know, the caricature of them. They're the problems of everything in the world. So I'm, I can read German, so I tell my mother what they all said, but, you know, pictures picture speak a thousand words anyway. And so you see how over and over what Hitler did is make the Jews a scapegoat for all the problems there. And then you go back and you to the barracks, and then you go back and recognize what had happened, and it's like, I really can't even comprehend what I saw, because there were, you know, uh, camps obviously in Poland also that were even worse, uh, but uh, like Auschwitz, but you've got still, Dachau was a horrific, horrific camp. Now, interesting, I remember telling the story once to my friend Hal Lindsey. Hal, as many of you know, was the author of the decade of the 1970s, author of The Late Great Planet Earth, and he told me his own story when he got to uh, uh, there at Dachau. He said he, he went there, and I, I could identify so much with this. You go there, and you're just overwhelmed with emotion, thinking of what went on. And he started crying his eyes out when he got to the, to the ovens there. And he said at the time, a very, very old man came up to him. And he said, why are you crying? Are you Jewish? And Hal said, no, I'm a Christian. And I hate what you know, these, these people did to God's chosen people, the Jews. And then this very old man told him a story. He said, I was a Lutheran minister here at Dachau during the Second World War. And he said, I want to tell you something. 
I was able to lead scores of Jews to faith in Jesus Christ before they went to their deaths. They responded to the gospel. So, you know, you never know how the word gets out. But it was a horrific, horrific time. And yet three short years later, after the end of the Second World War, the modern state of Israel was miraculously reborn. So they do exist. They have returned to their ancient homeland. And they were away for a long time, almost 1,900 years. So this is the distant future. Ezekiel 38, 8 twice says in the last days and the future time. So we know it's in the distant future. Now, they did come back in large numbers. Today, Israel, the population, the nation numbers of just about 9 million. And the Jewish population is almost 7 million. So they've come back in large numbers, as the Bible said, 7 million Jews in, in today's land. And the land which they returned to, uh, returned had been decimated by war. It was not a land of milk and honey. In fact, in the 19th century, when Mark Twain visited the land, here's how he explained Israel. If you went to Israel to visit in uh, 1867, when he wrote the book, The Innocents Abroad, listen to, the, listen to the Holy Land, the land of milk and honey. A desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route, hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. So in 1867, the Holy Land was a country that was desolate, no humans, no vegetation. One of the things I learned in 2017 when I was doing uh, breaking news, looking at the stories, there was a story about the 150th anniversary of Mark Twain's book, The Innocents Abroad, when he went to the Holy Land and talked about it being a desolation. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this, that when he wrote this book, it started bringing something to the, the surface in the Jewish people that read it, particularly here in America and other places that could read, you know, could read the English translation. What they would do, they thought, look, our land is desolate. It's been just like the Bible said it's going to be, but we need to go back because there's a promise of it blooming like a rose, a desert blooming like a rose, a land of milk and honey. So it really started the process of people thinking about going back to the promised land. And what's also interesting, 30 years later, 1897, a man named Theodor Herzl, he was a, uh, a, a journalist in Paris, and he's covering a trial of a Jewish man named Dreyfus. Dreyfus was obviously innocent of the crime, but he was found guilty because he was a Jew and sentenced anyway. And Herzl says, no, we can't have this anymore. This is terrible. We're going to have to go back to our ancient home. And now Herzl was also like Mark Twain. They were not believers. Uh, Mark Twain, agnostic atheist. Herzl was a very much a, uh, you know, a, a, a man that had no religious beliefs, but he wanted his people to go back to the ancient homeland. So he organizes in 1897 the first Jewish, first Zionist Congress. And interestingly enough, I think it was in November of, 19, of yeah, uh, 1897, he said in his, wrote in his diary this, I have today, you know, basically, invented, you know, the modern state of Israel, more or less, he said. And he said, in five years, maybe, but in 50 years for certain, the modern state of Israel will exist. Fascinatingly enough, almost 50 years to the day, November 1947, the United Nations voted to have two countries partition in the Holy Land, which had the British mandate the Brits were living at that time, a Jewish nation and an Arab nation. Almost 50 years to the day where Herzl said, I founded the Jewish state here in Basel, Switzerland. Certainly in 50 years, almost 50 years to the day, it was founded. So miraculously enough, they came back and they formed the modern state. They came back in large numbers, but they came back to a land that had been decimated by war. 
Yet when they came back, they created great wealth, a very wealthy country. There's a, a place you can go in Israel, and if you take a tour there, you'll see it. It's Megiddo, where Armageddon is going to take place. The Valley of Megiddo. Uh, Megiddo means mountain, mountain Megiddo. Armageddon Har, Megiddo, mountain Megiddo. And so you look over the plain there, and this is where these armies are going to gather in the last days. Well, when you go to visit Megiddo, there's something like 26 civilizations built one on top of another. They have pictures in the earliest 20th century of Jews who went there and bought some of the land there that is now that you now see. The land was, uh, you know, mosquito, malaria-infested, swampland. It's the ugliest land you ever saw in your life. And yet, what happened was the Jews bought that from the Arabs, and the Arabs thought, "Man, we've really took these guys. This land's worthless." Well, they went there and worked this land. And they have turned that plain of Sharon right now. When you stand there in the mountain Megiddo and you look over it, it's the most fertile place you will ever see on the face of the earth, turning a country into wealth that had been uh, desolate. And this is exactly what was predicted by the prophet Ezekiel 2,600 years ago. They're turning it into a land of great wealth because it's because they have great wealth that this final uh, ruler, this Gog personage, will want to attack them. So what's interesting about this they, do, they have created great wealth. The desert's been built up. And one of the authors, like I told you, I, bet I was reading about these 19th century authors. Notice this. Now listen to this. This is this man named Hugh McNeil. And he's talking about the barren condition of, of the Holy Land. It's well known today. The extreme barrenness and desolation. It used to be full with milk and honey, nothing like that. Listen to what he says. He says, in this way, we recognize the literal fulfillment of that clause of prophecy prophecy which predicts desolation. Well, here it is. And from the next clause of prophecy, here he goes, we confidently anticipate a literal renovation of beauty and fertility accompanied by a multiplication of beasts upon it as well as people for the consumption of its produce. In other words, the prophecy was fulfilled with desolation. The prophecy is also going to be fulfilled with the return of the people to the land and also with building it up to a land of milk and honey and even beyond that. In the present condition of the Jewish people, divided and dispersed, we recognize the literal fulfillment of those claims of prophecy, which imply division and, and predict dispersion. And from similar clauses, similarly interpreted, we confidently anticipate a similar literal fulfillment of the promise, restoration and reunion. In other words, okay, we have seen it decimated. We look at it, it's going to be literally fulfilled. He wrote these words in the year 1840, 18 centuries after the city of Jerusalem, the temple were destroyed, Jews scattered throughout the earth, the, the Holy Land was decimated, and he said, well, this is exactly what the scripture said, but someday, someday they will return. And he was exactly right, because the Bible says so. Now, his reasoning was very simple there. Now, turning the land into great wealth, this is something that is literally mind-boggling. I don't know if you've heard this before, but it's, it's incredible. Israel's just now 71 years of age as a modern state. They've always been a nation, been a nation of exile. 71 years old. Do you know they have been recognized now as the eighth most powerful country in the entire world? Number eight, this little tiny country the size of New Jersey, 71 years of age is the eighth most powerful country in the world. And when it comes to technology, they're number five on the list. The most 
fifth most technically advanced country in the entire world. Again, creating great wealth when they come back. So that is why there's something there that these people, these nations, want and need the great wealth that was created. So this is not a coincidence. All of this came to pass. Well, of course, Fulfillment 8, the modern state of Israel was formed May 14, 1948, miraculously. And uh, the borders now include the mountains of Israel. Now, this is one of these things that's really fascinating. All right. It's when they come into the mountains of Israel that God attacks, you know, basically destroys these armies. But the mountains of Israel were not under the Israeli control in 1948. No, not at all. Uh, the country was divided. The city of Jerusalem was divided right down the middle. And so careful Bible students says, well, look, there's got to be another war here. Uh, yes, they've got their independence, their modern state, but they need to not only take over the rest of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's divided down the middle. But the mountains of Israel have to be under their control because it's when they, these armies get to the mountains of Israel, assumed to be in Israeli territory with Israelis there, that God puts the whammy on them. And so careful Bible students said, there's going to be another war. Well, cross it off. June 1967, the Six-Day War, that particular time the Israelis recaptured, liberated, well liberated, we should say, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the, uh, the Mount of Olives, the Golan Heights, and the such like, the mountains of Israel, and set the stage for this to take place. But in 1948, this was not true. It's only since 1967 that this has been true. Now see, this is one of the great things about um, uh, studying the Word of God and knowing it. Uh, Roy mentioned I did a uh, World News briefing for years with Pastor Chuck Smith. Not only Pastor's Perspective, but we did World News briefing on his channel. And we used to always say this, we're not prophets or sons of prophets, we're just telling you what the Bible said. Chuck always told this story, uh, he, he loved telling it, about you know, how we, as Bible-believing Christians, can anticipate what's going to happen in the future simply because the Bible predicts it. And, he, and he, he would tell this quite often, maybe you heard him tell it if you saw him in the past. But he was talking about in the early 70s. He's up in the northern part of Israel, right at the border there, but Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. And he's with some of the Israeli Defense Force people, some of the generals there. And he's talking to them about their future. And he says, fellas, it's not Syria you need to be worried about. It's not Lebanon over here. The nation you need to be worried about is Iran. They're going to be your worst enemy. And when he said that, you know what happened? They laughed at him. Chuck, come on, Iran, Iran's our best friend. If, and this is true, if it wasn't for Iran and the Shah of Iran in 1973, Israel would not exist. They helped resupply him along with the help of the United States to win the Yom Kippur War. Iran, what do you mean? And Chuck said, no, they're going to just, just remember I said this, people. Well, a few years later, the Shah of Iran was deposed, the Ayatollah Khomeini took over, and Iran became the Islamic Republic of Iran, which would export terrorism worldwide or jihad. Well, as soon as that happened, uh, Pastor Chuck started getting all these phone calls from these generals in Israel saying, uh, uh, what's going to happen next? Well, it, he said, it's real simple. It's in the book. It's there in the book. Iran is one of these countries who will invade. So the point is, we're not prophets or sons of prophets. We tell you what's going to happen in the future because the Bible says so. It's just that simple. So what we've seen now is the modern state of Israel was formed that includes the mountains of Israel as a result of the Six-Day War, and also they have come back in unbelief of Jesus. They have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Many of the Jews are secular, having no former religion whatsoever. All right, so here's the amazing thing. The 10 things that Ezekiel predicted that would be true in the last days, as we've just documented, are true right now in front of our very eyes. Let me ask you something. 
What do you think the odds that could happen by chance that he would know way in the distant future the Jews would be scattered again? Because remember, he's talking about a, a second scattering, a second exile, because Jeremiah talked about a 70-year one coming back from Babylon. The four corners of the earth scattered without, you know, uh, you know, a, a homeland for a long period of time, coming back in the last days, coming back and forming a modern state, uh, taking over this territory, uh, having great wealth after coming to a land desolated, decimated by war. What are the odds you think that could happen by chance? Someone would know that. They're impossible. They're off the board because Israel, let's say, you know, humanly speaking, should never have come back from Babylon because you realize no nation in the history of the world has ever been removed from their homeland once and ever come back nationally, never once, but it's happened twice to Israel, once for 70 years, once for 1900 years, and both times predicted, here they are back in the land today, literally fulfilling the predictions of the word of God. So all 10 are literally in place right now, even as we speak. Uh, you know, there's a God in heaven, like we read at the beginning, who knows the future, who is in control of the future. Now, I'd like to, I wish we had time to go through all the details of, the, uh, of the, the predictions. Now, they're about to be fulfilled. It all makes sense. But there's one thing here in particular that really hit me as I was going through this. And I'm doing, remember, I'm doing this for the first time, and I'm um, looking at this whole situation in Ezekiel 30. I'm trying to do it in a one-hour talk like we're doing here. And all of a sudden, I said, wait a minute now. When this fellow Gog, when he attacks Israel, he's not worried about anybody intervening on, beh on behalf of Israel. Nobody does. In other words, there's nobody there who either can or will help Israel out. So I'm going through this. I mean, I'm writing down, you know, during this invasion, what's going to happen. I go, where in the world is the United States of America? Because I tell you today, if Israel was attacked, we would be there right, right on the enemy. What in the world is happening? And so the conclusion you have to come to at the time of this invasion, still future, there will be no superpower who can or will come to the aid of Israel. So what does that say about the United States of America? Well, a couple possibilities. My favorite one is uh, there's nobody here in the country because a great revival takes place, rapture of the church comes, the country's empty. I'm an optimist. I like to see that. But if that doesn't happen, there's other possibilities. And that is there'll be an administration which either will not or cannot or both of the above help Israel so they do not come to their aid. All we see is a protest from some of the Gulf states. Well, what are you doing? But they don't get involved either. And so Israel is left on its own or so uh, these nations think. What they're not counting on is God himself who intervenes on the side of Israel. But isn't it interesting, the United States of America, we're not there. We're not a player in the last day's Bible prophecy. So what does it mean? It means for whatever reason, we are not the nation we have been that would help Israel if they get into a time of distress like this, like we have in the past wars, particularly in 73 when President Nixon helped them out and allowed them to be resupplied, which eventually overturned you know, the war on the side of the Israelis. And so um, the sad thing is, and this is one of the things I, I heartbreak with every day in doing the, the His Channel programs, the, the, the stories I have to read that fit what the Bible says about the last days, about people turning away from the Lord, about you know, uh, denying the very truths of the gospel, of persecuting both Christians and Jews of living, you know, sometime having a form of godliness but denying the power of, of having this globalistic idea of the world, of not world not having borders, this and that, and being just, you know, like it was in the days of Noah, two signs. You've got lawlessness and you've got violence, and that's what we see. 
I think many of us who are older do not really recognize the country in many senses that we grew up in. And let me tell you, unfortunately, it's only going to get worse because we are considered the enemy by the powers that be, by the masters of the universe or by the, you know, the social media giants. We're the enemies, whether it be Google, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, Amazon. We're the bad guys. We're not the progressives. We're not the ones looking towards the future, they think, because we believe in an ethic. We believe in the Bible. We believe there's a God that exists. We believe Judeo-Christian ethic that God has spoken, and there's going to be a time people are going to stand before God. We are hated by these people. We are, absolutely are. And they, you know, they can't stand us. And let me tell you something. When they get back in power, they can't wait to get back at us, too. We fortunately have a reprieve right now, and we hope it'll last somewhat longer. But if it doesn't, we need to look out because their sights are on us. That is the message. And, you know, they, they're, not even, they're not even shy about saying something like this. And so we have to realize that we live in a very, very difficult time. But if this what happens, if the nation continues to turn its back on God as it is, then they're in for a time of judgment, particularly if they turn their uh, back on Israel, which unfortunately some of these, uh, you know, people that are coming up that may be even a leader of the country someday have said. So we live in very, very difficult times. Heartbreaking to, you know, some of the stories we have to report that are literally mind-boggling. You'd ever think you'd see the day when uh, we had a speaker at the University of Missouri a couple months ago, and he was gonna, the talk was going to be on the difference between men and women, and the stage was rushed so he couldn't speak. Because how dare you say that? that and the, the, dean of the, uh, the dean or president of the school said, that offends our student body to say there's a difference between men and women. You, you are just what you want to be. You see, biology doesn't count anymore. The fact that women have double X chromosomes, men XY, no, no, that's not what counts. What counts is what you want to be, what you think you are, what you, you know, expect to be. And so we see this nonsense happening today, this unscientific idea that there's no such thing as biological males or biological females. It's whatever you want it to be. And all you have to do is start looking at women's collegiate sports to see some of the problems there. As you have these men that decide to be women and decide to compete. You may have seen the picture of the, it was the, the national championship of the NCAA hurdles where they've got all the hurdlers lined up. These young ladies are about five foot eight, five foot nine. There's a dude there about six three who decided he was a woman and guess who won and set the state record? He did. And they're applauding her because he decided he's a her. How ridiculous this is, and I'll tell you where else it's bad, uh, this, you know, the, um, what's it called, small business, SBA, Small Business Association, has special loans for women wanting to start their own business. Guess who's trying to get some of those loans now because they couldn't get them as men? Yeah, people will now say they're women. This is how crazy and how nutty this world is. But if you say something against this, well, you're just... I mean, you're just a Neanderthal for believing something like this. Now, talk about unscientific and ridiculous. We probably never thought we'd see the day that we hear this, but this is what we live in, and we could go on and on and on. Bottom line is, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but the problem is it's only going to get worse, particularly with some of the leaders that are warming up in the bullpen coming up who will eventually take over here. So we're living in a very difficult time, a very difficult world. But here's the good news, and here's what we're going to close with. The good news is there's a God in heaven that's told us about these things, and because he's told us about He's going to give us the strength to get through it. Today is Father's Day, and I thank God I'm the father of two wonderful, wonderful young young ladies. I've got two daughters who are still both in college. I started late, uh, but they're wonderful, and I'm thankful for that. But I worry about the world they're growing up into, they're, they're going to live in, because of what's going on now, right now in front of our very eyes. 
Today, we all came in here with issues that are facing us. Today, I don't care who you are, there's something that's going on in your life that isn't perfect, right? The good news is, when we see the God of the Bible predicting events that are going to take place in the future, 100% accurately, showing he keeps his promises, he knows the future, then we can apply this to our own lives. When he says, I've got promises for you, uh, you know, I'll supply all your needs through my riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19, 1 Peter 5, 7, and 8 says, if you cast your care upon him, he will care for you. So we have promises galore in Scripture from the same God who made these predictions with respect to the nation Israel in the last days. You know what that means? Whatever issue you came in here with today, whatever need, whatever hurt, whatever loneliness, he can meet those needs. He's still there for you and I. That's the great message today. The God of the Bible does exist. He knows the future, and he is in control of the future. Nothing has taken him by surprise. And it's since he's telling us this, nothing should take us by surprise. We are told in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, in the last days, the wise will understand what's going on. You know what that means? We will get it. We will understand the time in which we're living because we understand the plan of God for time and eternity. And in the same verse it says, the wicked will never understand. So today, as you come here to church and as we worship the Lord God, let us be, give thanks for the fact that he's told us these things ahead of time. They don't catch us by surprise. We're expecting these things to happen. But when we see them, our hearts are broken, and yet we know God's plan is going forward. But in this, he has promised to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. So as we go out and live in this world that's getting darker and darker, know this, that the Lord God is still in control, still running the show, but he's also in control of your life and my life. And the promises that he has made to you are still valid and still good. So hopefully you walk out of here today with confidence that you are serving the living God. You're not believing a fairy tale. You're not assassinating your brains to be a Christian, but you're looking at the evidence and you've determined that the evidence is there. There is a God that exists a God who claims to know the end from the beginning, and a God who certainly does know the end from the beginning, as we doc uh, documented right here in the short time that we had. Thank God for it, that we can trust him. Thank God we're living in these days where we don't really have to exercise faith. All we have to do is open our eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can see in the time that we live your hand working so mightily here on the earth. Thank you that we live in these days that were so long ago predicted where the signs are all fulfilled in front of us and help us to be not only thankful for it, but to be more trusting in you because knowing that no matter how dark it gets, you're in charge. You're running the show. You're in charge of all these things that we see. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you very much. You've allowed us the privilege of living in these last days, of seeing these things. So help us to be salt and light in the world, to tell people about the first coming of you, about the Lord Jesus Christ dying for the sins of the world, coming back from the dead, ascending into heaven, and forgiving sins for all of us who come by faith and ask for his forgiveness. Lord, thank you again for all your gracious gifts. Thank you for the for Pastor Ed, this wonderful church, a wonderful staff, and all you're doing here in Aurora, Colorado. Continue to bless it. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.